Hello and welcome. I'm Matt Renner, and I'll be co-hosting today's program. Hello and welcome. I'm Matt Renner, and I'll be co-hosting today's program, New Business Paradigms: Conscious Commentary on Business and Society, with Ronaldo Brutico. Ronaldo is the president of the World Business Academy, and I'm the Academy's executive director. The World Business Academy is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to transforming the consciousness of business leaders business students, and the public at large, in order to inspire business to take responsibility for the whole of society. To find out more about our work and to connect with us, please visit our website, www.worldbusiness.org, or email us at info at worldbusiness.org. Today's show is a very special one. We're going to be speaking with one of, our most pro- one of the most prolific and inspiring futurists on the planet, Barbara Marks Hubbard. But before we get to our guest, Ronaldo, let's talk political economy. The news since our last show has been packed full of mixed economic and political news, and I'm curious to hear what your take is on the events of the past month and the implications for the future. Great. Well, thank you, Matt, and uh, thank you to all our listeners. It's great to be back on uh, doing another show. And I like to always remind people to go back and listen. We've got all three years of this program uh, can be retrieved as MP3 files, on our on our um, website, so that you can always go back and, and compare what we're saying today with what we said before. I think that the uh, two major top, well, three major topics for today. Number one, uh, the failure of the Obama White House to become the chief, to, to act as chief executive, mm-hmm. uh, uh, is certainly one of those topics. Sequesters one, and the macroeconomic situation is another. Uh, with regard to Obama, this is the third show we've actually brought this out. We keep we're keeping raising it because the problem's not getting better; it's getting worse. The country is without leadership right now. That's not to say that the president is not a bright and moral man. He's both bright and moral, and I think the direction he'd like to take the country is the right direction. No, no question, it is. In fact, there's a, I'll throw some statistics economically. Uh, right now, if we didn't have to deal with a cutback in government spending austerity, if you will, which we know did not work in any country in Europe as a complete disaster and isn't working here. If that, if, if the Republican Party had not been forcing that on the public, we would be at at least two points of economic growth higher than the one and a half to two and a half points we're running right now. Some people think we're running as high as three. I think that will turn out to be a, a blip. Basically, I'm, I'm guessing around two and a half and easily a point or more has now come off our growth rate because of this austerity, which which is just shooting ourselves in the foot. It's not necessary. It's the wrong thing to do. It's the exact opposite to do. It's what Herbert Hoover did that got us into the Great Depression in the first place, and it's a mistake of massive proportions. In addition, I believe the unemployment rate would be down around 6.5%, and, 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 and I'm not the only one. I've been saying this now for a couple of shows. I was delighted that the New York Times came out with an article just today on that subject, um, I'm also delighted, by the way, that for the first time in, since 2007, we're going to have a $35 billion principal reduction to the federal debt, meaning not only are we paying all the interest we owe, but we were actually able to pay $35 billion down yesterday against principal. That's a nice mortgage payment, and it's one we can keep doing if we stop with this crazy sequester, which leads me to the second point. So wrapping up on the president, I love the fact that he's a good explainer. He is the explainer-in-chief. In fact, I call him the professor-in-chief. Unfortunately, he's not the chief executive officer of the country that we desperately need. And as a result, the country is relatively rudderless. Well, I'm not going to say rudderless, but certainly without a keel. It doesn't, it doesn't have the ability to go in a straight direction as the winds of, of political winds buffet it. So what really needs to happen is that the president's got to step up or step out. I think we'd be better off right now with Joe Biden, frankly, because I think he'd be willing to do the tough things that need to get done if you're going to be the leader of the free world. 
Unfortunately, the President of the United States doesn't seem to have the stomach for that, isn't willing to to, uh, to, to take decisive action. And if our listeners want to ask me specific questions of what he could do and isn't doing, I'd love to answer them. But remember, this is the World Business Academy. So we tend to evaluate the President as you would any chief executive officer. And as I said on the show last month, no chief executive officer would be allowed to give the excuse, gee, the guys in middle management, i.e. the Congress, won't let me do it. That's not an acceptable excuse. It's not one that Roosevelt ever accepted, and it's not one the president should accept. Why he is willing to do that, I don't know. It's beyond me. Putting that, though, beside me, because now, having said that we're somewhat rudderless, or at the very least keelless, the question becomes, what's the damage of the sequester? Well, people didn't realize until the FAA thing happened that that the sequester was really going to have teeth. In fact, I read an alarming statistic just two days ago that a huge percentage of the public the pub, of the of the public does not believe the sequester has been expensive and that's not true what's happened is the most consequential part of the uh sequester which was visible to everybody which was the delays that were caused by the air traffic control system those things instantly got dealt with because the congress flies on airplanes a lot and wanted their for their convenience unfortunately what you don't see in the headlines are the tens of thousands not just thousands tens of thousands of programs that are being absolutely affected in a terrible, adverse way. Teachers being fired, salaries being reduced. In fact, interesting statistic I saw just last week, that even if you were a teacher who kept their job during the recession, your average income dropped, meaning your purchase being power dropped, even if you were able to keep your job, which many teachers did not. Same thing's true, by the way, with firemen and police. So first responders have had a tremendous dent in their budgets. Head Start programs have been canceled or dramatically reduced. First Start, which is a program for uh, pre-K children, uh, has been decimated. So there are all these different consequences. Many of them are stealthy ones that you don't see, and almost all of the negative consequences, other than the military procurement budgets, Almost all of those consequences are impacting the, the, the lowest classes of society the worst. That's really what's tragic about the sequester. So it is biting that people don't realize it is because they don't have a child in um, Head Start, or they aren't trying to get transportation to a dialysis treatment if they're a kidney patient, which is no longer available, or they're, they're not an elderly citizen whose Meals on Wheels program was canceled or dramatically curtailed. So there's tens of thousands, in fact, I will say millions of people have now been adversely affected by the sequester, but they tend to be those with the least voice, with the least ability to be heard. They're the powerless in our society. And you know, uh, Gandhi observed that you can judge a society by what it does for the least of its citizens, and that's clearly what we have to do in our society. Right now, sequester's biting terribly, and don't forget, this is just round one. So here goes to the third point, the macroeconomic situation. Because the economy is continuing to develop, I'm going to say at least at a 1.5% growth rate, um, and you know that's the prediction I gave last December we'd be at, um, between, I said we'd be at one and a half to two and a half percent. We, as the sequester bites deeper each month, we'll drop from that two and a half back closer to the one and a half, which is where I think we'll end up, say, say six months from now. If there is no further sequester, meaning if they suspend it for next year, then I believe 2014 will be an even better year than 2013. We'll have positive growth in 2013, and we'll have a continued reduction of unemployment rates, although not dramatic which I think is what the Republicans are trying to do. They're trying to create a situation where the Democrats look bad because unemployment didn't go down fast enough and uh, the, um, the the economy didn't grow fast enough that the 
by-elections will take it out on the Democrats and the Republicans will gain even more seats in the House and maybe control the Senate. That the President of the United States isn't leading uh, his troops, so to speak, the Democrats, he can't even control his own party right now, but the fact he's not leading them into a, a, a big, big bonanza of, of, of positive seat gains in 2014 is a reflection of just how bad a job he's doing as an executive, even though his explanations to the public are correct, they're accurate, they're erudite, they're thoughtful. What he'd like to do, uh, I saw an email from his office just yesterday about unicorns. And then he what he said was basically you can uh, you you can say that unicorns exist and you saw one galloping across the street, but you know people would laugh and just keep walking. And that's kind of the position that the Republican Party takes and many of the climate deniers take on climate change. Well. As those of you know who listen to this program, we believe climate change has had a dramatic impact on the economy and will continue to do so. Is that a good or bad impact? Well, it's probably a bad impact starting in 2014. Right now, we're spending so much money at the federal level, which we wouldn't otherwise spend, for restoration of damage caused by climate change, i.e. flooding, um, buildings flattened in many different states from tornadoes and hurricanes. That sort of thing caused, even with the repairs in New Jersey and New York, that kind of spending wasn't planned for, and the Republicans can't stop. And that's basically infrastructure spending. So it's very stimulative to the economy. If, in fact, um, this continues to happen, which I think it will through the next six to nine months, then there'll be a slight lift to the economy, and that's why you'll see it gaining from one and a half. Ultimately, I think we could end the year at at least 2% annualized. But what we can't tell is when the government's going to lose the ability to respond through FEMA, lose the ability to respond. Uh, we know that, the, for example, the, uh, the loan program that covers flood insurance is basically bankrupt at this point in time. Does that mean the government's going to stop honoring flood insurance guarantees? I doubt it. I think they'll try and cut more insurance and hope to heck that it doesn't rain so much, but it will. So what you see in the macro economy over the short term, meaning the next one to two quarters, continued growth in corporate profits, by the way, mostly brought about by cutting expenses, not by really dramatic growths in sales. Continued consumer spending. Uh, the consumer's done a great job of reducing their debt load. Uh, it's not as good as it was uh, 30 years ago, but it's way better than it was. Uh, it hasn't been this good in probably about 10 years in terms of the, the debt to individual consumer level, which means that consumers can spend a little more if they want to. The rising real estate market, which we'll talk about later in the show, is giving people what's called the wealth effect, meaning they're feeling more flush because their real estate's worth more. So there's a lot of things pushing the private sector forward. In fact, an analysis was done recently by a major think tank that if you were to strip out the reductions in spending being brought about by forced on us by the federal government through uh, cuts both before the sequester and since, so the budget deal and then the sequester deal, these two pro these two huge efforts to reduce government spending to create austerity have in fact so depressed the economy that if you strip the effects of that out, uh, the underlying private sector, which has now added jobs for every single month since uh, I think second month the president was in office, certainly the third, so we're talking about four years of job growth, and it would have been far more significant. Well, if you strip out the negative loss of jobs from the public sector, it turns out the job growth is even more dramatic. So what we really have is the is a Republican Party that's pushing to reduce economic activity, keep unemployment high in the hopes they'll pick up more seats. You have a White House that's totally inept at running the country and is mostly interested in just preaching to the country. Uh, so the professor-in-chief holds forth, but the, basically his own party doesn't even have credibility with him anymore because he doesn't seem to want to get into the fray and create the result rather than complain about the problem. 
So at this point in time, I think we're sitting with an economy that's going to be good in the short to medium long term in terms of one year out, probably still good with the exception if the second bite of the sequester hits within one year, you'll start to see additional negative pressures on the economy. Uh, you're going to continue to see um, sideways pressures on the economy from Europe, although in the next three months that could become very negative. I'm really waiting to see what happens with the German elections. Uh, once Angela Merkel is reelected, assuming she is, will she become reasonable in her approach to what the European Community Bank is doing vis-a-vis -vis Spain, Britain, well, Spain, I shouldn't say not Britain, Spain, uh, Portugal, um, to a lesser extent, but still quite important in Italy. I'm also waiting to see how the Grand Coalition, as it's called the first time since World War II, where you have a left-center coalition in Italy, governing with the support of a right-wing coalition, which is uh, headed up by Berlusconi still. So um, lots going on in Europe, which could cause global economics to go sideways or down. Nothing that I see in the, in, in, in the near term that could cause the economy to go up. And I'm hoping that when Merkel gets reelected, she'll start acting in a more responsible manner as the leader of Germany and, and of Europe. Um, that said, can I ask you a quick question, Ronaldo? Sure, uh, one one uh, thing we saw since our last show was this horrifying collapse in Pakistan of this factory that is now the death toll is somewhere between eight and nine hundred. Uh, I was wondering what your your take is on the implications of that collapse and the values that uh, uh, may have actually caused it. Yeah, great. I'm glad that you asked. Um, first of all, it doesn't have any economic impact today because um, the impact is going to be felt six months, a year, or longer in the future. However, here's what thing it's doing psychologically. I predict that you're going to see more what's called onshoring as a result of that disaster. And I'll come back to talk about the disaster itself in a moment. But what, what American companies are beginning to see is that with, with advanced automation and with the cost of shipping as high as it is, it's increasingly intelligent to bring more of American manufacturing and production back onshore. Uh, the reputational risk posed by companies overseas with uh, questionable labor practices, and in some cases criminal labor practices, such as in the case of the Bangladeshi situation. Uh, by the way, another building in Bangladesh collapsed just uh, yesterday, I believe. Uh, nine dead so far in that one, including a very, very pro major um, proponent of uh, Bangladesh uh, clothing exports. So, um, and a manager that was actually killed in that in that uh, collapse. Well, what, what's happening is this. You've got companies like Foxcom. If you remember, Foxcom is a, is a supplier that built the iPhones for Apple that got into all kinds of trouble because they're running uh, factories that are, you know have barbed wire around the edges kind of thing. Right. Uh, Foxcom and its problems became so large, Apple forced Foxcom to clean up its act, which it's doing now. Foxcom, as a result, however, and partially because Apple is also losing some of its, ele you know, its elevated status, Foxcom is now decided just two days ago to launch its own proprietary brand of flat-screen televisions. In other words, to start producing products that can sell directly in the American market on the assumption that its labor policies going forward may not be acceptable to American consumers. I think they're right. They won't be acceptable. Whether Foxcom can get away with a private label or not it'll, remains to be seen. So what do we get directly from the Bangladeshi crash, which is absolutely deplorable, over 800 dead uh, and um, conceivably rising higher than that? Well, what we know is, that, and I'm very proud of the men's warehouse, by the way, as for those of you who know, I'm on the board. We're one of the 100 best companies to work for in America. And one of the things we did voluntarily over a decade ago is we started a, a complete audit 
function. So the board of directors, the audit committee of the board of directors of Men's Warehouse, literally has been independently auditing through an, uh, an independent agency its relationships with its suppliers overseas. Those audits are, in, uh, include spot audits without notice. They include noticed audits. They include um, all kinds of ways to get people written up for various infractions. And we have aggressively pursued all of our vendors, and knock on wood so far, We've been ahead of the curve because all of our vendors that we've discovered a problem with, we dropped or they fixed the problem, uh, and uh, we haven't yet been been been, been hurt in the, the, this terrible scandal concerning clothing made in Bangladeshi factories, which are substandard, and where they're usually basically slave wages in unhealthy conditions with locked doors. So I, I would love to share with people that in some companies, Men's Warehouse is one of them, took that initiative because it was the right thing to do. I think other companies, to your question, Matt, are going to do it now because it's the smart thing to do. The reputational damage of having your supply chain impugned as something that's you know one step above slave labor and inherently working in dangerous conditions is not something any American company wants. Now, you can't onshore everything, uh, but I think you'll see a continuing acceleration, which has occurred the last two years of manufacturing in Mexico. For those who follow this, as you probably know, Mexico has a net migration of zero or negative migration to the U.S. now because there are more jobs and the economy is growing faster in Mexico because American companies are onshoring to Mexico and then driving it across the border. Um, even with the terrible gang wars in Mexico, it still has led to an onshoring there. You're also seeing companies in America that are looking at trying to onshore in other ways. And in fact, um, I'm watching closely uh, personally right now a story of an interesting industry that may be doing something in that very uh, in that very sector of onshoring that I'll be able to talk about by next month's show. That said, the death tolls are tragic. The conditions are deplorable. Every company that uses foreign suppliers, I believe, should feel themselves morally and I would hope ultimately legally compelled to independently audit their full supply chain all the way to sub-suppliers, subcontractors, and do so voluntarily. But if they won't do it voluntarily, then we ought to do it through force of law and regulation because that's who we are as a culture. We don't believe in slavery, even if we can't see it because it's existing in another country to feed our habits of consumption. And by the way, I think that the extent that we pay a fair price for merchandise and don't use slave wages and don't use unsafe working conditions, not only are we a more moral and effective country, I believe our economy will do better as well. And I'd love for people to ask me questions on the next show. Send them in to infoworldbusiness.com and uh, .org and ask me, how is it the economy would grow better if we were paying our suppliers more because they were in Mexico or here in the United States? How could it be that you could pay more have to charge more at retail, and still have a stronger economy. Love to get that question from someone. It would be fun to answer. That's so a that's great question, uh, Ronaldo. And I, I wanted to ask, uh, what it sounds like you're talking about, actually, with the shift in consumer behavior and uh, this type of accident being unacceptable in the, when we can actually see it happen. Um, yeah, and you're right, it was Bangladesh. I, I, I accidentally said Pakistan, and I apologize. Um, but what you're talking about there with the consumer behavior is actually a shift in consciousness uh, and I want to actually bring our guest on, who is one of the most important and most interesting writers and speakers about consciousness and the evolution of consciousness. But I'd also appreciate it if you could introduce her, since she's a good friend of yours. Uh, this is I, one of the great pleasures of my life, to be able to, on many occasions, introduce my dear sister, Barbara Marks Hubbard. Barbara, are you there? Oh, hello, hello, Barbara. Well, um, I'm not I hearing we Barbara on the line. She's not hearing me on the line. Oh, we got oh, you now, hello, Barbara. Barbara. Are you there now? Okay. Okay. Can you hear me now? 
We can, Barbara. Welcome. Yeah, I had to push one again. Sorry. Yes, I'm no listening, problem. though, very carefully. I was just saying what a pleasure it is to introduce you on more than one occasion to my dear sister, Barbara Marks Hubbard. And before I formally introduce you, I, just want to, I want to make a couple of quick comments about your background for people who aren't aware. And I'm really pleased to do this. I'm going to quote Buckminster Fuller, who, as many people know who listen to the show, is one of the great inspirations in my life. Uh, in many ways, including uh, in my development of the H2 Clipper. Uh, Bucky said, quote, There is no doubt in my mind that Barbara Marks Hubbard, who helped introduce the concept of futurism to society, is the best informed human now alive regarding futurism and the foresights it has produced. My God, Barbara, what a compliment. (laughs) Yeah, it really was. And there's a story behind that, which I'll tell you. Okay. Well, if you will, I'm just going to do a little bit more of your intro, then let's go to hear that story. Uh, Barbara, okay. for those of you who don't know, has been the voice of conscious evolution, according to Deepak Chopra, another dear friend of ours. She's been an Academy Fellow for almost 20 years now. She's the subject of a brand-new book Neil Donald Walsh is doing called The Mother of Invention. She's a prolific, prolific author, visionary, social innovator, evolutionary thinker, educator, and co-founder and president of the Foundation for Conscious Evolution. She's the producer and narrator of award-winning documentary series, including Humanity Ascending, and many, many other accolades that I couldn't begin to heap upon her without spending the next 10 minutes. Other than that, she has two honorary doctorates, and uh, her book that I participated in, which was an anthology called Birth 2012, came out on December 22nd, Birth 2012, Co-Creating a Planetary Shift in Time. I could go on and on and on, but let me get right to it. Barbara, what's the great story about Bucky? Oh, well, this is really interesting. You know, I was a founder of the World Future Society along with being uh, in, in the academy, and the futurists in general do not have long-range visions of the future. They have different scenarios, and they don't see what they call is normative future. I was called a normative futurist before I, before this story happened. Normative means that you think there is a norm for a planetary future. Now, since we've never seen a planetary future at this scale, it's very hard to be normative. You know with a baby that it needs to be born with, with its two arms and two legs, and you know if it's normal or not, and how yeah. a mother says, is it normal, and that's a great word for a birth of a baby. Well, the birth of a planetary culture, civilization, where business cares for the whole, we don't have a normative picture yet. Because we haven't had it. That's why we're at the threshold of evolution. Well, with Bucky, I happen to have had an amazing, I would say, uh, revelation that the life of Jesus was actually a prototype of the future human. And that when we could combine Christ's love with Christ's miracle capacities, healing, producing in abundance, uh, even raising from the dead through DNA, through uh, bodies continuing to live in new forms. Well, I saw that that lifespan was a prediction, if you want to say it, of the life of a human species who gained all its power, like we have. We can blow up worlds, we can create worlds, infused with love. And I wrote a huge interpretation of the New Testament uh, called the Book of Co-Creation, mainly guided by this inspiration 
that it was possible to have something where we would actually realize our potential to use our new powers with love, which draws us together, uh, Ronaldo, because Omega, that your Omega Foundation, actually is the thinking layer of Earth being infused with love which shifts the consciousness of Earth. Okay, so I write this 1,600-page book. I sent it to Buckminster Fuller, and we were both speaking somewhere, and the note came down, Dr. Fuller is reading something, and he will not come down. So I had to talk by myself. He met me in the garden at the Annenberg Center of Communication later, carrying the manuscript. He put his arms around me, and he said, Darling, there's only God. There's nothing but God, and he said that he had the same type of Christ experience I had had. In his case, he said he was lifted off the ground, and he heard the words, Bucky, you are a first mini Christ on earth. What you attest to is true. Now, of course, he wrote you know, all about synergetics and spaceship Earth came without an operating manual and the fact we could be all billionaires. See, he got what would happen if we followed the potential within us. So he, he saw what I wrote and told me that he had gone to the New Testament, written something similar, and hidden it because he couldn't use the word Christ or God as an engineer. So when I asked him for a comment on the book, he said, Barbara's the best human now alive on the future and what it means for humanity because we both had an experience of the emerging state of evolution. So let me ask you this, Barbara. Transition that. So you're known as the, like really you, you are the person who is the progenitor of the concept globally of conscious evolution. And, and I'm wondering, is, is that what you mean by conscious evolution, that, that, there, that it's, 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 um, each of us is a, a Christ-like um, mirror or prism or a, a shattered piece of, of, a, of, of well, a hologram? It, it actually, that's, that could be part of it, but it's a simpler idea than that. If you look at the evolutionary story of creation, from the origin of creation through the formation of energy, matter, life, all the way on up to human life, we are trillions of cells organized in very complex bodies right now talking to each other. None of the species that came before humans were aware of their own evolution. None of them were aware of their own potential extinction. And, you know, hundreds of millions of species were extinct before we got here. None of them were aware they could evolve consciously. Okay, so along comes the human species, and I got this when we dropped the bombs on Japan in 1945. I realized we had gained powers we used to attribute to our gods. And I asked, what is the meaning of this power that's good? Where is the human species going? And after a long journey of inquiry and asking President Eisenhower and trying to join the church and going to Bryn Mawr College, I realized that actually, I I think Teilhard de Chardin was right, that the meaning of our power is the next stage of evolution, which is connecting and co-creating that which is emergent, loving, and creative. And that leads to Omega, which drew us together, uh, Ronaldo. So it's not only individuals becoming full of love, it's actually the evolution of our species 
becoming more aware of the deeper impulse of evolution within us. The deeper impulse of evolution within us. So becoming more aware of that, is is that the kernel of... That's the key, but let's say you and me, when I hear you talk about business, I know, I recognize the impulse of the evolutionary process, the implicate order, the spirit in action, as Ken Wilbur calls it, is motivating you to help evolve business. That same impulse could be helping somebody else to help evolve in education or governance or wherever. And that impulse has a direction toward higher consciousness, greater freedom, more complex order, and it has a built-in hope that we can transcend current problems, not to just fix them, but to actually create newness, like pre-life to life or animal to human. So the... What I mean by conscious evolution is awareness of evolution and evolution by choice, not chance. Right. And and, uh, I know from all of our prior dealings that the the, the Christological way that you came to this doesn't foreclose um, the Dalai Lama having come through a different path, but with the same conclusion as far as I can tell. Exactly. Whatever your culture is, I mean, every great culture has its own version of this. But none of us, at no culture on earth, has lived through a planetary crisis of this global extent, especially what I've learned about climate change, which could really ruin civilization itself. None of us have faced this collectively, whatever our culture is. But where conscious evolution helps you is that you realize in the past, crisis precedes transformation. Problem. Yeah, the question here is, do we have the time? And we've always dealt with change. I mean, that was Heraclitus. You never step twice in the same river because by the time you put your foot in, the river's changed. So we've always been an ancient Greek philosopher, Heraclitus, has been dealing with the subject of change. But what's really seemingly the problem today is the speed of change. Do we have time to evolve in the normal biological way, or do we have to make a leap now because we're, we have so little oh. time? This is not by biological evolution. This is by by spiritual, social, and technological evolution. And here is the amazing thing. In the last 10 years, the planet has grown a new nervous system. Facebook is the third, it's the largest nation in the world. It has over a billion people. Facebook, Twitter, Google, what has happened there? Cell phones, three-quarters of humanity has some form of cell phone or smartphone. What what this means is that suddenly the human species has the ability for extremely rapid communication. What we don't yet have is the idea of what to do about it. And even our president, as you were saying, the leader-in-chief, he doesn't have what I would say is a full evolutionary perspective that could start looking for radically new solutions to these problems rather than slight adjustments to the current situation. Yeah, that's what we fault him for his lack of, of executive ability, not for his lack of erudition or his willingness to point in the right direction. You know, um, I'm going to 
close this off, I just want people to know that we're going to post your your bio is already on the web, uh, Barbara, and we'll update it as a result of this call today, so that people can get a fuller sense. Of, I I read less than a third of Barbara's bio, so I, I want folks on this call to know that when Barbara speaks about things like conscious evolution and she tells you how she got to that stage, this is a woman who's been a thought leader on the planet for more than four decades, and and as a result of that, I hope you'll look at her bio and recognize that when she speaks of something as pressing as the role of conscious evolution at this time and how it is the way we will end the climate change crisis if we're going to end it at all. And and within a fairly short period of time, we will do it. Uh, I just want people to be aware of how profound and deep that conversation is. I also want to point out that I did a speech two years ago, Barbara, uh, called The Role of Business at a Time of Conscious Evolution because I see the, the implicate order of conscious evolution and reformation of business as handmaidens to the same topic. So I just know I want you. There's applications I think to your work in every direction. I I think this is true. And and just uh, on climate change for one moment, I have become uh, a partner here with David Gershon, whose project is called Cool City Challenge: Reinventing Our Cities from the Bottom Up to Achieve Deep Carbon Reduction, Resilient Neighborhoods, and Green Prosperity. Now this is interesting from your point of view. And business point of view, what he David points out that social change 1.0, that is to say, adjustments within the existing system cannot meet a problem of the magnitude of climate change. So his book is called Social Change 2.0, which is mobilizing new designs, new patterns, new systems through empowerment of people and radical degrees of cooperation. Now, he's had a very good history of doing this. And so he said to me, you know, Barbara, you have a vision that by meeting the climate change crisis, by mobilizing whole cities at the neighborhood level all the way on up to the universities, the students, and the government, by mobilizing it for a great crisis, that we're going to create a better culture than we ever had before. Well, you know, let's, by, let's, go ahead. Finish this other well, I question just right want there. to say that, that one of the reasons why conscious evolution is helpful is it makes you recognize that when we're facing a crisis of this magnitude, and there's several of them, that, that there is, we should be looking toward what we're creating that is a greater potential for our own uh, well-being, for civilization's well-being, and for the ability of business to be more successful rather than less. Okay, good. So here's the question I wanted to, because I don't want to run out of time without asking this. I know that this, uh, there's a new movie being made about you uh, called The American Visionary, which clearly you are an American visionary. You're one of the great American visionaries, in my humble opinion. And uh, my question is this. As an American visionary, so with, with that as your background, that's, that's the core, that's, the, that's, the, that's the, the soil that your feet grow in, so to speak, uh, what is your perspective of the, the ability of the planet, of our planetary civilization, to consciously evolve quickly enough to deal with climate change and some of these other crazy issues that are pressing upon us in a very fast order? Well, see, the, the way I got to be an American visionary is, is very surprising. I never would have called myself that. But when I asked my father what religion we were, and he was Jewish, agnostic, secular, business, Lewis Marx, toy company, all of that, he said, Barbara, you're an American, do your best. (laughs) And I began to think, uh, being an American, do your best, means realize your potential. 
which is really the truth for everyone on earth. So as I didn't think of it this way, Ronaldo, but I began to uh, do a new uh, riff on Thomas Jefferson, All Men Are Created Equal. I came up with All People Are Born Creative. Right. We hold these truths to be self-evident. All people are born creative, endowed by our Creator with inalienable right and responsibility to realize that creativity for the good of the self and the whole. That really sounds like the World Business Academy to me. So, so what I believe the challenges we're facing, like climate change, is perhaps the most a, a large magnitude, but also financial challenges at every level. Let's just take the financial tra- uh, challenges. As you're very in a very s- sensible way saying what to do in the immediate, I happen to be a good friend of Bernard Leotard. And the He's whole also idea, a fellow of the Academy for about 17 years and the author I know, of a book we just and you, did. And yeah. you t- we've talked this over. His theme is monetary democracy using complementary currencies, not, not just um, currencies that, that not alternative they they've dropped that word alternative currency because complementary currency means you still keep that part of the, our financial system that works but you add complementary cur- currencies that fit different communities as you well know they're trying to do one in Santa Barbara now and um i i've just been to several meetings with this group and it's so sensible ronaldo that oh, people right. oh, can no generate question. wealth by their own creativity as well and not be completely vulnerable to the current market situation. Well, I'm glad you mentioned it because, and by the way, the, the book that, that just came out at the request of Club of Rome that Bernard was the principal author of, and we at the Academy actually instig- were instigators of, um, and you know, we, we, we're very proud of the role we play with that book. It's called Money and Sustainability, and it's a, ta- it's a discussion of how to create compatible currencies which would not replace the euro but which would shore it up. And if anybody's listening that would like to get an article, um, I wrote one myself on this subject um, very recently about compatible currencies, and and, uh, hopefully it's very short, but I think it's very easy for a layman to understand as opposed to some of the stuff that Bernard works on. Bernard and our dear, dear friend Hazel Henderson, myself, and Bill Sechrist have formed a core of the academy for many years called the Monetary uh, Monetary Theory uh, Group, and we've been you know, studying collectively for many, many years. I'm glad you brought it up for this reason, Barbara. Your the film about you as an American visionary. I really want people to get that your vision as an American visionary is for a planet that works. It's much broader Absolutely. than the vision for just America. It's it's not a xenophobic. A jingoistic, <laughs> uh, self-exploitive uh, opportunity. What it really is, the chance to see how you have lived your truth and how that truth could make us free. Well, that's that's right. I, I was inspired to find out what it meant to do your best. <laughs> to do your best. <laughs> that, that, that as you always lot. have. But, but here, here's the thing about it: is of course, when that vision, all, all men are created equal, and that constitution was written, that was. That was a signal for humanity to come here and create this. This we, you know, the only people who were here were the, the native peoples that we didn't treat well. But the the thing that I realized is that in, that in some deep sense, the whole of the human species now has a challenge to have a declaration as great as all men are created equal, which is all people are born creative. And and then what is the system that connects the creative in time, Ronaldo, 
to shift toward a viable and sustainable future. Now, there is where the genius comes in of conscious evolution. Because if you have to do both, think of the immediate short term like you're doing. The next year, the next two, what we do about this sequester, what the president can do. I am convinced that the top of, of the existing power structure are not the ones to make the change. Because well, great social movements liberal, always come from the bottom. Well, and liberal democracy, as, as an example, is based on oppositional forces. It was a lot better than monarchy and killing each other. But it's still designed to create uh, opposition so that nobody can get too much power. But here we need what I think of, I call synergistic democracy. And I ran for vice president in 1984 and was at my name placed in nomination to propose, here's a very brilliant, simple thing, that we need a new office for the future and peace room as sophisticated as a war room. War rooms map enemies and how to defeat them. And think how sophisticated they are. Why not a peace room to track innovation, creativity, and solutions in every field? Connect them and communicate them. And why not have the Vice President of the United States set that one up? And by golly, I got into the Democratic National Convention and I got more delegates than Jesse Jackson. <laughs> Which is quite a statement. I have a question before we we have to ring off, I'm afraid. But, but Barbara, you did a book called Conscious Evolution, Awakening the Power of Our Social Potential. That's what you've been talking about the last 10 minutes. I'm wondering, is that book still in print? Is that able to be yes, obtained? Yes, it's, it's still in print, uh, Ronaldo, and people can still get it. Go to our website, evolve.org. And I want to tell you one really great idea about that is that we now remember the human potential movement and the self-actualizing person that was identified at Esalen and Abraham Maslow and created really the human potential movement. Here's the new phrase I'm using. What is the self-actualizing society and the social potential movement? In other words, what if you go to the peaks of, of social potential, let's say in business, where conscious business is working and you go into health where a better personal responsibility and health breakthroughs are working and you go to management where cooperative management is working and you connect all that, uh, Ronaldo, you all see an emerging world already in our midst. And I would like to say I think the only way we can do this in time is by creating the function I ran for vice president on. Map, track, connect, and communicate what's working in the new social media. Get it out there for greater participation and shift the system. Let's let's get to that task right away because I would like to leave everybody with this one thought. Please, <laughs> dig into what Barbara's been talking about for four-plus decades. Uh, one or more of her books, just listen to her speeches, take some of her courses, go to evolve.org, and when you get a chance, hopefully it won't be too far in the future to see a film called The American Visionary, you'll know they're talking about Barbara and what she's been offering to all of us. Barbara, it's such a delight, and it's such a joy, and it's an honor to have been your friend for almost Well, years. you know, Ronaldo, you are my beloved advisor, and if I had a choice, you would be the chief executive of the United <laughs> States and tell us what to do. I don't know about that, Barbara, but I would love to be able to give some advice on that subject for sure. Okay. <laughs> anyway, thanks so much for joining us, Barbara. It's been wonderful, and uh, we're going to have you back again. We're going to continue the conversation at another show. All right. We'll see you soon.
Good. Bye-bye. Much love. Bye-bye. Uh, wow. Matt. Well, that was that was a beautiful interview and a beautiful message. Thank you for that. Uh, a quick note to our listeners. That was a ton of information all at once. Uh, if you have questions or have, want more information about anything discussed so far on the show, please visit our website at worldbusiness.org or uh, send us an email to info at worldbusiness.org. We love getting your questions. Um, we love also getting your comments, and we'll try to answer as many as possible. Um, also, it's really critical that uh, we have your help in growing our audience. As you can tell, there's a lot of excellent information uh, on, a, on a variety of topics on the show, but we need you to pass the word on to your friends. So please share the link to this show. Uh, the podcast will be up along with past episodes on our website. And uh, do, do us a favor and hopefully do the planet a favor, and let's start spreading the word about this information. Uh, now, Please. Ronaldo, yeah, you know, I, I really, and I urge people. You know, um, you know what I charge uh, uh, through the academy, Matt, and and I love giving answers to questions when people write them in ahead of time for the show. So please, if there's something that you think we can help you bracket, understand better, um, something that you feel we should comment on to give you a different sense of where we're coming from or where we what our perspe- perspective is, please, we love hearing from you and we love answering those questions on the air, which means that you don't even have to be live to hear the answer because it will be in the podcast that you can pick up anytime on our website, worldbusiness.org. So Absolutely. with that, uh, thanks very much for telling people that, because you know, I, it, 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 my joy in doing this, Matt, is that more people know about it and tell each other. That's what gives me a great thrill and what makes me happy for the academy. Now, there's a really important topic that you and Barbara touched on, and I'd like to go a little deeper on because it's something that the academy has been working on recently. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the current uh, project we're working on on global warming and the the presentation you did at Tory Pines. For oh, I love. Yeah, I'd love to. So. Um, for those of you who didn't hear about it, I don't think we put we put a little bit of information about it in the newsletter, but we didn't talk a lot about it because it was a private meeting. Uh, my good friend Jack Canfield, who we'll have on the show at some point, Jack uh, started a group called TLC, which uh, Barbara's also a member of, which stands for Transformational Leadership Council. I'm also a member. Uh, and Jack approached me about a year ago, and he said, you know, Ronaldo, it would be great if we could combine what the TLC does, its process, if you will, with the content. Uh, what the academy does, and deliver it to you know the kinds of CEOs and senior executives that you Ronaldo hang around with, and 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 would it be great if we could put like a really special three four day event together? So we did, and that event just happened uh, ten days ago at Torrey Pines, which is a nice little executive retreat in, in hotel c- complex near uh, La Jolla, California, and at that conference, uh, because we had all these CEOs, the uh, uh, and very interesting group of people. And we, we originally were going to hold it down to about 45, but because of one thing and the other, we let it go. It was, it was 66 people were there. Uh, and we just, there were just too many people we wanted to have come that kept in, accepting so that we, it grew a little bit more in size. But I think we still retained the intimacy we wanted. And, and my job specifically in that conference, it, 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 besides being on the steering committee to hold it and bringing gifted speakers in to talk to the executives, which we did. A number of Academy fellows were there, Raj Sisodia, the founder of Conscious Capitalism Movement, uh, Richard Barrett, the world's leading authority on value-centric organizations and corporations, and, and uh, very interesting, Bob Chapman, a CEO from a great company who's committed to his employees' well-being and happiness. Uh, and my job, in the very first day with the keynote, was to give a picture of something that was so enormous that business could no longer deny looking at it. And the topic I picked was climate change. And what I said basically was this. Um, if you look at the 
history of the American experiment from 1608, the landing at Jamestown, to uh, the present day, of all the periods of time, and I went through each one of them, and you can imagine the various ways that America was perceived and the crises it dealt with and how it, how it was uh, eventually an effective world, uh, player on the world stage. In all of those time periods, none of them are as critical as this time that we're in right now. We call it this is the time. And, 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 and when we broke that time apart for people on a scale, we said between now and 2060, which is an optimistic assessment, of how much time we've got to reverse climate change before human civilization as we know it no longer exists. 2060, optimistic date, probably going to happen sooner. So between now, 2013 and 2060, we're sitting here with the option of changing climate change or not. That's what Barbara was talking about. And what we, what we spelled out in that talk was of all the threats facing human society, which we know of, like terrorism, and we showed a slide of the Boston thing. And, you know, it's a terrible thing, but it's not something that will end human civilization. And it's something that can be dealt with. We, we talked about all the other threats, you know, the, the Iranian nuclear missile situation, the Korean nuclear missile situation, all these threats, uh, the possibility of an asteroid impact. None of them are as certain to destroy human civilization as we know of it as this particular threat called climate change. And so we talked about it in great detail, and we showed exactly what's happened to the climate since 10,000 B.C. to 2000 A.D. And when you analyze it, as we did, and you see how, how dramatic the shift has already been, what you realize is we're in a negative feedback loop, which is now self, the planet has a fever, and that fever is in turn causing it to get hotter. If we went, Matt, to zero CO2 emissions today, literally to zero, which we're, we'll, we'll actually emit more CO2 tomorrow than we did today. But if we went to zero today, it's too late. We really have to focus now on reversing the damage climate change has already done. Yeah. We're above 400 parts per million on CO2. The planet has a fever. And by the way, uh, that slideshow, we're going to have, um, at the request of many of the people in the room, we're going to turn that into a, a little uh, a video slideshow and people will be able to get a copy of it for free from the Academy uh, by going to worldbusiness.org. If you'd like to see uh, the talk we gave, it's a 28-minute talk to the CEOs at Torrey Pines, uh, send in your uh, request to info at worldbusiness.org, and we'll make sure that you get a copy of it. Yeah, and I, I really do appreciate that, the slide presentation. I think what we've been seeing recently, the weather, uh, is just – it, it, it's something much different than we've experienced before, and I think the slideshow really brings into focus the, the magnitude of what we're dealing with and the, the options facing business, uh, like you said. Uh, Ronaldo, I want to well, move Actually, you know what, Matt, just, Matt, yeah. just to that point on, on, on business. See, you take the flooding in the Midwest, in the Mississippi River, for example. It was so flooded yeah. that barges broke loose in the moorings and were you know, going over the tops of levees. levees. Uh, two weeks earlier, the Mississippi was so dry, they had to stop barge traffic for a while because they couldn't float them. Now, that um, going from drought to deluge to drought again is one of the things we've been warning people for years is a coincident of climate change. In other words, weather weirding, as we prefer to call it, is the new norm. Uh, and, and what we want people to realize is there is no option to decide whether you want to deal with it or not. As Governor Cuomo told people in New York after Manhattan was wiped out up to 39th Street, don't expect this was an odd event. This is just the beginning of a new regular occurrence. And by the way, the water won't stop at 39th the next time necessarily. So what we're talking about is a, is a, a cataclysmic challenge 
to human civilization globally. Uh, 73% of the population of the planet lives below where the new sea level will be, which is going to be roughly 160 feet higher than it is now. And that's not going to take 100 years to happen. That's what people don't get. In fact, in the presentation, we show people how the acceleration of the heating is causing an acceleration of the melting of the, of the Greenland ice sheet, acceleration of the uh, melting of the ice masses in the north, uh, northern and southern poles. So what I want people to get is talking about climate change is no longer optional. Addressing climate change is no longer optional. If you think you can run your business through climate change without a problem, that would be like telling me you have no, no, no difficulty running a shop in Syria today. It's that crazy. So if you think you could conduct business in a normal fashion in Syria, which nobody can, then you'll be fine for climate change. The fact is, it's going to be Syria and then some. Because unlike Syria, where there still are pockets that are out of war zones, the entire planet is where climate change plays its destruction out. Well, Get a I copy appreciate of the that video. Ronaldo, and I'd like to move. So that's we're talking bef between now and 2060 is a very optimistic number for climate change. Uh, let's move from that medium term to even shorter term and go to the lightning round now. Uh, the lightning round for those of you who are new listeners is a segment in the show where we do quick takes on uh, various asset classes and make predictions and check up on our old predictions. Uh, Howard Smith, uh, with the previous co-host of the show, called in some numbers for us on our past predictions. And he said that the Academy's advice in November to buy the S&P 500 was right on. Uh, that is up now 14% since we made that call. Also, our call in November to start selling gold when it was priced at $1,750 an ounce uh, is very accurate. It, it is now at about – we would have saved you about 16% of your money if you sold then because gold is now down to about $1,470 an ounce. Uh, Ronaldo, let's talk about uh, asset classes you want to touch on today. Sure. And those those predictions, folks, we make those on the show every month. One of the things we do is we try to give uh, people who can't afford multi-million dollar advisors, we try to give them the information they need to have a fair chance to protect their savings and to grow their savings at a time that's very challenging. So the prediction on gold stands. I wouldn't be buying gold today. We could talk about why. If people send me questions, I'd love to answer them. There's all kinds of stuff out on the Internet about why gold's going to bounce back, how it could hit $4,000 an ounce. And if you want to know why we think don't buy gold, now is still our advice, be sure to ask, but that's our advice in the lightning round. With regard to um, the S&P 500, we said that the market would move up. It has moved up by 14 percentage points since we said that. I think there's a little bit more rise left. I'm not sure how much more. If you bought the stock when we told you to, you're probably okay. If you didn't buy it then, I would look at stocks now in a different way. I wouldn't be buying the S&P 500. I'd be buying um, stocks with a high ratio of dividends. In other words, pick stocks. It's becoming a trend now on Wall Street where you can get 2 3 4% or more, but certainly 2 3 or 4% by getting dividends from companies whose stocks you own. Now, those stocks, I predict, will go outperform the market in years to come. At least that's the current prediction. So you're not going to get hurt on the face value of that stock. And it's going to give you money that's better than what you can get in a bank or any other form of, of, of investment. So if, if, if we live in a 1% world, which is all you're going to get for your money in a mutual fund, why not get 2 3 4%? by getting dividends from companies that are solid as the Rock of Gibraltar, Men's Warehouse is an example, but there are many others, where you get good dividends, and you're going to have nice appreciation of the stock over time. But even if the market goes sideways, you keep getting your 2%, 3 4% dividends, you're happy until we see a change or shift 
in the macro dynamics because right now inflation is going to stay very low between now and the next phone call for sure. Um, with regard to other assets, I've got a question that came in before the show about REIT, Real Estate Investment Trusts. I specifically was asked, uh, I own some REITs, they're performing well, should I keep them? Answer, yes, absolutely. And in fact, if you know what you're doing, and you get into the right REIT, you can still make upside because REITs often have commercial portfolios, and I believe that commercial real estate will continue to recover, not as rapidly as domestic or residential real estate. No, no question. Residential real estate will continue to go up. I'm going to talk about that in a second. But in, in an REIT focused on commercial real estate, you can still get a heck of a ride, and some REITs pay good-sized dividends. So and they're actually called distributions in the case of a REIT. So take a look at REITs. Yes, if you own one and it's well-managed uh, and you have a sense of where the real estate properties are, so that's a real estate investment trust, if you know which pieces of real estate are in there and you like those pieces of real estate or the aggregate of those pieces of real estate, by all means, keep those REITs. And if you're looking for a diversification apart from the market, a REIT could be a good one if you analyze it properly. Send me more questions on REITs. Glad I got that one this time. The next question is on real estate generally. Uh, domestic or residential real estate is absolutely going to continue to rise. Uh, we've seen a nice lift. We've been telling people since, I don't know, last August that you'll never see a combination again in your lifetime of low prices and low interest rates. Well, that turned out to be true. Uh, we passed the bottom of the market. There's no question we're past that bottom. We're moving along nicely. In some markets, like Los Angeles, you're seeing gains as much as 14%. Other markets, you're seeing 6%. Even in markets like Phoenix, which were badly depressed, you're seeing an increase. There are very few markets in the country today where real estate is not rising. And in those rare markets, it's usually as a result of other factors, often political ones. So you don't see the same kind of gains in cities where there is a significant political crisis working its way through the system, i.e. Detroit. Uh, but you, generally speaking, across the country, across the board, prices are rising. In fact, I would say that it is now a uh, seller's market. It was a buyer's market. It's now a seller's market. I know of so many deals now that are going to market in Southern California, for example, where the Property goes on the market, and within less than 24 hours, you've got two or three offers at or above the asking price. Uh, that same thing is happening in other markets as well. It's not just unique to Southern California. And remember, Southern California had a particularly bad uh, unemployment rate, still does. So for it to be happening here uh, is a very good sign for the rest of the country. But the whole country, it's, it's rising. Um, I think that's, do we, that's about all the time we have for... For the lightning round, unless there was a specific question you'd like me to touch on. I know bonds. I didn't cover bonds. Um, it's still good to get it. You can get into bonds and get a decent return. You've got to know what you're doing in the bond market. And the risk with bonds, ladies and gentlemen, is you might get yourself a 2 3 4 5 even 6% return. But by the time you sell it, you lose more on the face amount of the bond. So let's say you pay $1,000 for a bond and you sell it a year later for 900 the fact that you made 5 or 6% won't help you. You actually lost 10%. Well, what drives the prices of bonds down is rising interest. If you keep listening to this show every month, we'll try to telegraph to you before the bond market dips. Right now, the bond market's relatively strong, and you can get decent returns in it, you can, in corporate bonds particularly, you can, in sound corporate bonds. You don't have to go in the junk bond world to get a decent return. So, Bonds can still be good, and I, and, I, and I gave a recommendation two or three shows ago 
that in some states, which previously had bad credit, like California, it was now safe once again to buy what are called general obligation bonds. The reason why that's the case is a longer story, but the good news is if you want to get tax-free income, debt, meaning bonds issued by certain municipalities and states like California, can still be obtained at decent returns, although nowhere near the attractive returns uh, you would have gotten, say, if you'd have invested five, six months ago in California GEOs or general obligation bonds. I continue to like bonded indebtedness which is tied to a particular revenue stream or so-called revenue bonds. So if you can find a particular aspect of society, a rapid transit system, a, 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 a bonded indenture for a new sewer system for infrastructure repairs, where the fees that come back on the bond are collected from the use of whatever was paid for. So uh, if you go uh, many years ago, I bought barrier rapid transit bonds because I figured, gee, no matter what happens to California, people will keep riding Bay Area Rapid Transit or BART. So the fare box at BART is what services the bonds, so I knew they were going to pay their interest, and the principal therefore was safe, and I would hold it to maturity if necessary. So there are ways to play the bond market. Uh, it takes a little more sophistication. Be sure to ask questions on this program. Are interest rates going up or down? In fact, that's one I will automatically always tell you. Interest rates going to go sideways. For the next month until the next show, we'll update you then. Listen in and be sure to share the information with your friends if you'd like to see them do well as well. Matt, did we cover it all? Ronaldo, that was great. I want to thank you, uh, and I want to thank our audience for listening today. Uh, Ronaldo, do you have any final thoughts? Yeah, just one or two things I want to say. First of all, uh, Barbara Marks and I got into some pretty esoteric stuff today, and um, that's because the when you live in the world that Barbara lives in, of conscious evolution, it's hard to separate that from which is knowable and known from that which is just a foible of human personality. I really want to urge our listeners. Barbara is one of those people I've been listening to literally for 30 years. She's a contemporary of mine in the sense that we've, been, we, we've gotten along together beautifully. We've, we've worked on any number of projects together. I can I just assure our listeners that the more information you can get about Barbara, the better you're going to like how much you've learned, how much you can apply it to your own life. And then come to programs like this where we can help to translate the implications of someone who Bucky Fuller thought was one of the greatest futures who ever lived. And Bucky was no shallow thinker, as we all know. So I want to urge everybody to look deeper into the work of Barbara Marks, perhaps take some of her courses online. Again, go to evolve.org. And like me, uh, look forward with great anticipation to this film coming out about Barbara. It's really about her work and about our work collectively called The American Visionary. Thanks very much, and thanks for tuning in today, everyone. Take care. Thank you.